scripture for this morning's message is from uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Good morning. Every year, to start off the year, we devote a Sunday, or two in this case, to family ministries. So I have the privilege of delivering a sermon that's devoted to one or aspect of my choice of family ministry. And um, as I mentioned, I'll also be following up with a series next week as well. So this week and next week, we'll kind of be focusing on um, the family and the idea of family. So I know Christmas is over and everything like that, but I've kind of always wanted to preach from Matthew chapter 1, and there's a lot of family implications there. So this morning, my goal is to kind of just build a, a, a kind of a theology of, of family and, um, and make a couple of points for that. And then next week, I hope to kind of flesh that out just a little bit more in terms of what, is, uh, what, 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 what are the inworkings of, of, of a family, uh, both in the household and in the church, and what does our commitment covenantally look like together, and how, does, how do we flesh that out. But today, I just want to make the point that uh, we are covenantal beings, and um, family is founded upon the idea of covenant, and uh, I just want to make a big deal about that. So that's kind of the direction that we're going, just to give you kind of a little bit of an overview there. So let me pray for us, and then we will get to work. Father God, thank you so much for your steadfast love. Thank you for your covenant faithfulness. Thank you that you made a promise to us, and you kept your promise to us. Even though we were faithless, you have been faithful. So I pray, God, that you would inspire us with a vision for how you see our families. pray that you would encourage us. I pray that you would challenge us as well. And we just ask, God, that your will would be done and your word would be spoken and, and your spirit would be at work in our hearts to shape us into the people that you want us to be. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So if I were to ask, uh, what, what's the greatest uh, problem facing America today? It wouldn't be too hard to make the case that it's the breakdown of the, the family. Um, maybe it is, maybe it isn't the, the, the biggest problem facing our, our country, but uh, it's, it's plausible at the very least. And um, depending on how you look at it, uh, there's probably a lot of truth in that. I know that uh, the Puritans did a lot of thinking on the family and so on, and they said things like, as the family goes, so goes the nation, right? 
So whether or not that is the biggest problem, I don't want you to get too hung up on that. I'm not trying to make a, a case one way or the other. But uh, I will say this. It doesn't, it doesn't answer, if uh, the breakdown of the family is the biggest problem that's facing America, it doesn't answer why is the family breaking down, right? And I don't want to, again, I'm not going to answer that immediately, but I just kind of want to throw that question out there. And I hope over the course of the sermon, I will answer that question for you. Why is the family breaking down? And by implication then, because family and church are related, why is the f- church being impacted then? Why is it, why, why is it, why is it breaking down? Um, and our story today deals with a family. It looks into a family, Mary and Joseph, and it sees them as the culmination of a long family tree that began in the Old Testament. And then this family also stands at the beginning of the New Testament, which documents the church as God's family. So here's this family, Mary and Joseph. They come together. God is putting them together. They're at the end of the Old Testament, right at the beginning of the New Testament, the end of uh, one family line, and it's the beginning of a new family line here. So that's kind of the position that uh, this story um, finds itself in. So besides Jesus being the main character, we learn how God works through the lives of Mary and Joseph. Mary was probably 12 to 14 years old or so, um, and Joseph was most likely around 18, give or take. And in their culture, it was common for parents to arrange marriages, And we're, although we're not exactly certain how Mary and Joseph came together. We do know that they were betrothed to be married. And um, since we don't have an equivalent in our day and age of betrothal, I do want to just explain a little bit about what that looked like so that we can get our minds around the significance of the situation here. And uh, in, in Christian circles in America, we practice engagement, and um, uh, uh, so, so that that that's common to us. Uh, a man will go to Jared or something like that, buy a ring, propose, and um, if the woman says yes, then they start planning a wedding, right? And that's the the way that it works. And their culture, betrothal was legally binding, so they were viewed as husband and wife at this point. And then there was a period until their marriage, until their, their actual wedding day. So, so they, were, they were considered husband and wife. So this is quite a bit more significant uh, th- th- than, than our understanding of what an engagement period would look like. This is why Joseph would have had to offer Mary a certificate of divorce in this situation if he wanted to separate from her. And even though this was the case, it wasn't considered acceptable to have sexual relationships during betrothal. So scripture tells us that Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, and the fact that she is now carrying a baby during their betrothal period uh, creates a unique dilemma for both of them. And this wasn't just a unique dilemma, this was a significant dilemma that they both are facing. Um, God understood the situation that he put them in. He understood the cultural implications of what it would mean for Mary to have a baby at this point. And, and yet, he does this. He works this way. Nothing happens on accident with God. And, and it, for me, as I read the story and as I probe into it, it really begs the question, why, why would he do it this way? I don't know if you've ever asked that question. Why would God put them in this situation? From Joseph's perspective... The only logical explanation for Mary's pregnancy at this point was that she had committed adultery, right? 
In this case, and this is probably the common perception around too, how else would this happen? Or they were unfaithful and they, did, they didn't honor the, their betrothal period. Both are negative. Good luck with going around saying, um, well, yeah, the Holy Spirit came upon me and that's why there's a baby inside of my womb. God understood that that wasn't going to fly, most by and large. In this case, according to many teachings within Judaism, divorce was not only optional, but perhaps even mandatory, since the sin of adultery was viewed as an impurity that automatically dissolved marriage. So if Joseph were to carry on and go through with Mary, he would condone either the, the terrible sinful act of adultery or he would expose himself to sexual impurity and breaking covenant in that way and breaking the expectation of the betrothal period. So it's a lose-lose situation, really. Now, it's lawful for Joseph to divorce Mary, and since at this point, righteousness, at this point in, Judea, in, in Judaism, righteousness was connected to keeping God's law. So it would have been expected for Joseph to divorce Mary in order to preserve his own righteousness. Right? But on the other hand, the dilemma kind of gets a little bit more complicated than that because it was also lawful for Mary to be stoned for adultery if that's what they decided what was, gonna ha- what was the case. So if Joseph does go ahead and divorce Mary, it would affirm everybody's assumption that this was adultery, you see. And now this exposes Mary to a potential, at, at worst, stoning by death or at least a life of shame and scorn and being a single mother. So Joseph is in a very unique dilemma, a significant dilemma. Both of them are in a significant dilemma, right? And we see Joseph as a compassionate man who does not want to see Mary suffer, so he essentially has two options. He could divorce her quietly, or he could divorce her publicly, right? And he goes, it says in Scripture, he decides to divorce her privately because that's acceptable, And this way, it's kind of the best of a bad situation. He preserves his righteousness, and he doesn't expose her to the kind of extreme scorn and consequence. By human wisdom, this is the the most logical conclusion that they could come to. But it's right in the middle of this human reasoning and understanding that God intervenes, you see. God enters our world, and he challenges our human understanding with his divine wisdom. What was God's solution in this situation for Joseph? God says, stay. Take Mary as your wife. Be a faithful father and keep covenant. That was the solution that God offered. That was, this, that was the third option. When the angel says, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, he's referring to all the commotion and havoc that their family was sure to be facing as they stayed faithful to each other in a situation like this. See, God is affirming, I know people aren't going to buy this story. This is going to be hard. 
by and large, some people will accept it and rejoice in it. Many people will not. But don't fear. I'm asking you to keep covenant, to stick around, to stay faithful, to be the father of this child. This isn't the way I would have started the kingdom of God. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have started it this way. I don't know. I, I, would, I, I think you guys would agree that you probably wouldn't do it this way either. And again, it begs the question, why? Why would God do it this way? Why, if family is this foundational institution of society, as we all would agree that it is, why would you bring reproach on it right off the bat? And there's a couple of answers that I want to offer to you, and I want to start off with this one. Family needs a savior. While it is the backbone of society, and it is immensely important in society, it is the foundational institution of society, humanity faces a deeper problem. It faces a sin problem for which it needs a savior. Perhaps God's choice of, uh, to, to bring reproach on this family is to protect us from thinking that, that a well-ordered family is the solution to society's problem. Maybe. Maybe the reason why God is bringing reproach on this family is so that we don't jump to the conclusion that, oh, we just need to get family back in order. And that's the solution. That'll solve everybody's problem. God says, no. <laughs> yes, there was a lot of social maladies that will go away if fathers stayed faithful to their covenant, if, 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 if single mothers weren't having to raise their kids. There's no doubt that there's all kinds of social issues that would be fixed if the, so, if the family unit was put back together in better order. No doubt. But there's a deeper problem that God is addressing. It's, this, it's human nature's sin problem. And for that, he brings a savior into the world. God instructs Mary and Joseph to name their child Jesus, which means God saves, Yahweh saves. Jesus is going to save their people from their sins. You see, the genealogy that we read, or I'm sorry, we didn't read that, but I want to I point our attention to the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. The genealogy in chapter 1 traces Jesus all the way back to Abraham, God made a covenant promise with Abraham to make him into a family, right? And to make him into a great family, into a great nation. And this family became known as Israel. And Israel was filled with all kinds of sin and idolatry and faithlessness, even though they were God's treasured possession, So through the genealogy, we see wicked kings that are fathering righteous kings, righteous kings fathering wicked kings. We even see five women that are included in this genealogy. And it's rare that women would be included in a family tree, in a a genealogy like this. But Matthew includes them. Several of them were not even Israelites. The Bible refers to non-Israelites as Gentiles, so they shouldn't have even been in the family tree. And more than that, they were very questionable in character at some of them. They have backgrounds in rape, prostitution, adultery. If you read through and look at all of these individual women, the point is, Jesus 
is the end of a long line of an unfaithful generation of a family that is filled with sin and strife, adultery, prostitution, and Jesus, uh, the, the, Matthew's genealogy climaxes at the, in the arrival of Jesus Christ. And it is organized to show that humanity's greatest problem, humanity's greatest problem, uh, need is for a savior. Matthew also shows the faithfulness of God through the promise that he made to Abraham and how he kept his promise to Abraham, even though there's all of these odd characters that have been in place along the way. You see, the point I think that Matthew is making when he puts all of these people in the line of the genealogy, many of them were of questionable background and sinful, is that the family of God is open to all different kinds of people if Jesus is the Savior of them. And that's why it's significant that Jesus stands at the end of this genealogy because he is the Savior of all of these people, of all the people of the world. Now, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ is included into the church, which is God's family. And just like the genealogy, there is no limit to who might be welcomed into this family, the church. Your inclusion into God's family is not based upon your heritage or your ethnicity. It's not based upon your social status. It's not based upon your behavior, whether good or bad. It's based solely upon Jesus Christ, the Savior, who was born and lived a perfect righteous life and died a death in your place. And if you simply respond to him in faith, you are now considered part of God's family, the church. John 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the New Testament, furthermore, in addition to calling the church the family of God, also calls us the bride of Christ. It says... Come, I will show you, in Revelation 21, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So here's, here's what's interesting. God created a family, and God was the one who arranged a marriage between his son, Jesus, and a wife that he had picked out, the church. God was the one who arranged a marriage between his son and his and, and his and, and a wife. If we are the church of Jesus Christ, we are the family, and we are the wife of, of Jesus. God asked Jesus to take a wife as his own, even though it would cost him his own life. God asked Jesus to covenant with the people, even though it would be at great expense to himself. Do you guys see the connection here with what God was asking Joseph to do when he, when he said, take Mary as your wife? Do you see a connection? Jesus takes a bride. Jesus takes a wife that's made up of all kinds of background of sin that would, that would force him into a very sacrificial uh, uh, place. See, for Jesus to take the church, you, and to make you into a family, that 
would require him to offer his life on the cross. For Joseph to take Mary as his wife would expose him to all kinds of sacrifice and hardship. In the same way that God had asked Jesus to take this unfaithful bride that we are was the same way that Joseph was asked to take Mary, who appeared to be an adulteress. Even though she wasn't an adulteress, it appeared that way and it was perceived that way. I hope you guys see the connection here and what I'm trying to get at. I think the reason why God put Mary and Joseph in the situation that he did was so that it could be a picture of the kingdom of God. The way Joseph was called to be faithful to Mary, even though it would be at great expense to him, was the way Jesus is called to be faithful to us, his bride. You see the connection? And in this case, it makes a lot of sense. What better family scenario might there be to bring a savior into the world than a family who is wrongfully accused of a sin that they didn't commit? Here's Mary and Joseph, this family unit. They've been, they've been accused of a sin that they didn't commit. They would bear the reproach of it. This is the perfect family to start the kingdom of God, is it not? To bring the Savior in the world who is going to save us, his bride, by being condemned for a sin that he didn't even commit? I hope you guys see the connection here, what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to draw I'm trying to say that the family unit that God had put together through Mary and Joseph formed the foundation now of the kingdom of God. And there's this unique connection between their individual family and the larger church family. Interestingly, for Mary and Joseph, covenant commitment created a family in which the Savior was born into. And Jesus, in their immediate family, makes it a context of gospel proclamation as they stay faithfully committed to each other. Here's another thing to think about. This just came to me this morning. But right now, one of the reasons why it was going to be very hard for the people around Mary and Joseph to understand or to even believe that the Holy Spirit had conceived a baby and that they would, instead of Joseph offering her a certificate of divorce, stay faithful to her, You know why that was hard for them to understand? Because they were looking at it through a Judaic lens. And you see, Mary and Joseph and their family marked the end of Judaism and the beginning of Christianity. He was using their family to confront a false religion and a false understanding of truth. You see? He was using their family to draw out from this Judaic system and bring them into the Christian worldview and now be a proclamation of what it means to be in Christ. They were the first Christian family, if you will. And the reason why they were scorned is because they, the people didn't understand Christ in them. Now, a lot of ways, we think about Mary, and we don't relate to the situation, right? We say, okay, well, she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, and she was giving birth to the Savior of the world. 
But in a lot of ways, we actually do relate to them as Christians. And here's how. If you are a Christian, you are born of the Holy Spirit. Right? If you're a Christian, you're born of the Holy Spirit. And our common connection together is in the Spirit. And even though we don't give birth to the Savior, you know what? The Holy Spirit impregnates our mind and our thinking. And as the Holy Spirit impregnates our thinking, we give birth to what? Life. In action and in thought. Are there times where Christians have worldviews that are unaccepted by the world? Yes. Why? Because we are born of the Spirit. We have the words of life. And as we are impregnated in our minds and in our thoughts with the Holy Spirit, it gives birth to worldviews and to behavior, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. It gives, it gives birth to worldviews and behaviors and thoughts that are life-giving for the world. And for some, it's the aroma of death, and for some, it's the aroma of life. So, I want to encourage you guys. Mary and Joseph stayed faithful to each other. They made covenant with each other, and God called them to keep covenant with each other. They were faithful. I want to encourage you that as you stay faithful, either to your spouse or to your children or to your family or whatever circumstance it is in life that you're faithful, you're remaining faithful in, that is honorable in God's sight. In our culture, faithfulness isn't valued high enough, is it? Faithfulness isn't celebrated, but faithfulness is great in the kingdom of God. Joseph and Mary were faithful to each other, Joseph, and, and that served the kingdom. That was great in God's sight. That was used by God. So I just want to encourage us in our various fears that faithfulness is to be celebrated. Faithfulness is to be pursued because it reflects God's faithfulness. It reflects God's covenant love towards us as his people. Now, I want to balance... I want, to say, I, want, I want to point our attention to a, a, an interesting balance that I see in Matthew 1. It is the balance of compassion for sinners and outcasts withholding to a very high standard, right? Those two things are hard to balance in the Christian world and even in the church. Sometimes it's really easy, and we see this in, perhaps in churches, it's really easy to open the doors really wide to the kingdom of God and to have patience and compassion towards people who are perhaps immature or undeveloped as Christians, whatever it might be. They don't really know much about the Bible. It's really, it, it, there's one side of the spectrum where that, uh, 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 there's one side of the spectrum where that is, that, that's the case. Where, um, where there's compassion some people tend to excel at, at uh, relating to people who are, um, who are immature in their faith, perhaps, right? We open up the doors wide. We're good at welcoming people who um, 
don't know as much as perhaps we do. And then the other side of the spectrum is holding the bar high, the bar high, to have high standards of morality, to have high standards of maturity, to have high standards of godliness. And the people who have high standards of godliness who are maybe considered more mature in their faith, tend to be a little bit less patient with the people who are just kind of entering into the whole Christian world. And vice versa, the people who are really, really good at relating to and welcoming in and being compassionate towards unbelievers perhaps or less mature believers— tend to think of holding the standard really high as a threat because then it might exclude them. You see what I, I, don't, know, I don't know if this makes sense, but um, Matthew, in, chap, in Matthew chapter 1, we see Matthew um, hold up both. He does well with both. He welcomes really broadly sinners from all different kinds of backgrounds, and he shows compassion towards sinners from all different kinds of backgrounds. But at the same time, in the same breath, on the other end of the spectrum, we see Matthew hold the bar up really high. We see God hold Joseph to an unbelievably high standard for Christian morality and Christian maturity. He calls him to stay faithful to his bride, to, to Mary. So we see that, that, um, that, that God both calls Christians to a high standard, but at the same time, through the genealogy, he calls us to be welcoming and compassionate and faithful and patient with sinners, no matter what kind of background or walk they come from. We see that in the genealogy, and we see that when God calls uh, Joseph up to a high standard. So one of the takeaways that I want to leave you all with from all of this is to encourage us to be covenant keepers. We would all agree that family is the most foundational institution of society. And that as, a family un- as the family unit crumbles, the culture around us crumbles as well. The question we should ask is, why is the family unit crumbling? And this is the question I raised at the beginning, and uh, this is what I want to wrestle with now. What is it that is causing family to crumble. In general, it's because we're turning our backs on God, right? But, and we're seeing the consequences of that that culturally. But more specifically, it's because covenant is no longer the highest virtue that defines us. It's no longer the highest virtue in marriage. Covenant obligation is no longer the highest virtue. Here's a quote from Al Mohler when he spoke to BYU. Um, this October, BYU, Brigham Young University. It's a Mormon um, institution of higher learning. Um, And Dr. Moeller is the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he uh, made it very clear that they share different views of God and that they would not be in heaven together. But at the same time, he appealed to them as their friends who would stand with them for his family, for their values on family. And he was addressing the, the, uh, the issue of same-sex marriage. But the implication is good for us here as we probe into covenant, and covenant being the foundation of family and our church family. It says, 
We must note with honesty and candor that this moral revolution and the disestablishment of marriage did not begin with the demand of same-sex couples to marry. He went on to say, the subversion of marriage began within the context of great within the context of the great intellectual shift of modernity. So marriage started to fall apart with the intellectual shift of modernity. Marriage was redefined in terms of personal fulfillment rather than covenant obligation. That's, the, that's what I really want us to hear. Marriage was redefined in terms of personal fulfillment rather than covenant obligation. Duty disappeared in the, flag, in the fog of demands for authenticity and the romanticized ideal of personal fulfillment. Marriage became merely a choice and then a personal expression. Companionate marriage was secularized and redefined solely in terms of erotic and romantic appeal for so long as these might last. What is he saying here? He's saying that the breakdown of the family, the breakdown of the church, is connected, and, and by implication, the breakdown of society is connected to the shift from covenant being our highest virtue and identity to personal fulfillment being our highest and defining virtue. We live in a culture where we are defined by personal fulfillment and personal expression rather than the promises that we make and keep. You see, the reason why the family is breaking down and the reason why, by implication, the church is breaking down is because we have replaced covenant obligation as our highest virtue that defines us with personal fulfillment as our highest virtue that defines us. Right? Tim Keller said this, Since promising is the key to identity, it is the very essence of marital love. Why? Because it is our promises that give us a stable identity. And without stable identity, it is impossible to have stable relationships. What God longs for us in the church is to have relationships that honor him that are based on promises and covenant. And that's what we see God calling Joseph to do. If you're a Christian, your identity starts and ends with, with a loving Heavenly Father who made a promise to you and kept a promise to you. Even though it was at great expense to himself, his one and only son, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that you could become a child of God. Most of us don't need to be convinced that marriage and family should be understood in terms of covenant commitment. But, for whatever reason, when we approach church family... I would argue that it seems a little bit more acceptable to let personal preference and personal expression to guide our involvement. Right? The kingdom of God is paying a hefty price for this because it forces the church to meet people as consumers who want what they want the way they want it. It keeps individuals and the church in marketing mode. What do I mean by marketing mode? It means they always have to put on a show and put their best foot forward in hopes that the other will like what we have to offer them. 
And if they don't like it, I'll go somewhere else. You see, this is the problem when personal fulfillment and personal expression replaces covenant obligation as our highest virtue. Everything starts to unravel. And now the family unit and the church as a family loses its ability. It is robbed of the ability to be a a context where covenant commitment binds us together in a display of Jesus as our Savior. You see, covenant allows us to be real. If our unity with each other is based on covenant, rather than marketing ourselves in hopes that people will like us and will click, then it allows us to be real. And when we're real with each other, it gives us the opportunity to display grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness and patience and kindness and most importantly, sacrificial love. You see, the world is connected by affinity. Jesus says that if you love those who love you, what good is that to you? The world hangs out with only people that it likes and it prefers. But here's the thing. They don't need the fruits of the Spirit. We need the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience. Why do you need patience if you're only hanging out with people that please you all the time? You don't need the Spirit. This is man's way of saying, I don't need God. I'm going to be my own God. I am going to live according to my personal fulfillment. I'm only going to hang out in context with people that always please me and that I like, and if they don't, I leave. I don't need the Holy Spirit to produce patience in me. I just leave. The church is not bound together by personal fulfillment and likes being met. That is an important part of it, no doubt. The church is bound together by people who are born of the Spirit and who are in covenant with one another. And covenant now is the basis for which Jesus shines as our Savior, you see. Why? Because Jesus put up with you, and now we put up with each other. Jesus died to himself so that he could keep us as his bride, you see. And that is reflected when we covenant, when we make covenant are the basis of our connection to each other. You see that? We don't need gentleness for people who always please us all the time and make us happy. We need gentleness for people who annoy us, for which we need the Holy Spirit. And that is the basis of the New Testament covenant community. That's why family and marriage is a display of the gospel. And our church together becomes a display of the gospel not when personal fulfillment and and preference rules our decisions, but when covenant is at the basis of it. So I just want to challenge us with this vision of church. Joseph was called by God to play an amazingly difficult role. He was asked to take a bride. Even though it was going to mean great expense for him, Jesus took a bride. He took us. And it cost him his life. And I think 
we can pursue that kind of vision. We can find the joy of what it means to walk in Jesus' shoes when we love each other as he loved us. So for now, I just want to leave you with that. The purpose of our family is to proclaim Jesus. The purpose of our church is to make it a place where Jesus is proclaimed. And I want to call us, I know this is going to challenge our thinking, but I want to call us to say, let's pursue that vision of church and family and life together. And next week, my hope is to kind of flesh out what do those covenant relationships look like? I want to add a little bit, a bit of meat to the bones there. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your steadfast love to us. And um, I just pray that you would uh, take these words and use them according to your purposes. Thank you for your covenant faithfulness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.